Trails of troubles, rows of battles, paths of victory, we shall walk. The road is dusty, the road is a mighty rough. Better road is a wing, the day is not far off. Good afternoon and welcome to WEAC 90.7 Emory and Henry College and we are excited to open our show today, She Walks. She Walks is a show about women's walk to freedom in all the different aspects and various ways that women might feel some bondage and and we've been doing a women in leadership series and we've been talking to some phenomenal women and we have one here today and Carly's going to introduce her and we're just going to spend some time just kind of talking about some things that are really germane to women and women in leadership. Carly? Today, we're very excited to have with us Dr. Christine Fleet. Um, she is a professor of biology here at Emory & Henry. She received her PhD from Duke University, and she's also hosted a TED Talk titled Life as a Scientist, a Woman's Perspective, which is wonderful, and you should go watch it. But we're so happy to have her with us, so we're going to hand over and let her introduce a little bit more about herself before we jump in. So I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for this opportunity. Um, I've been at Emory & Henry now, I guess a little over 15 years. That's kind of strange to think about. Um, and right, I'm, I'm a biology professor. Uh, I, I sort of live more in the cell and molecular, the tiny things end of the biology world. Um, I am also though a mom, right? And a spouse and a daughter. And so uh, <laughs> learning how to navigate all of, of those things together. Um, I, I came to Emory, well, right. So directly by way of Duke, um, I started my life as a, a preacher's kid in rural Georgia and then moved to New England as a kid and have landed <laughs> sort of somewhere halfway in between uh, those, those earlier uh, places that I lived. So I'm, I'm happy to be here. Wow, that's a lot. Dr. Fleet, that's a whole lot of stuff. I want to ask all kinds of questions just based on, <laughs> based on what you said. I, I want to know, wow, the preacher's kid was interesting, you know, just for me as clergy, that was interesting to hear you say that. And then, but really the whole issue when you were talking about the the molecular and then seeing how that fits in at Emory and, and your research, those, those are really things that just kind of prompted my interest. So Carly, you have a series of questions. So you want to ask a question first, and then I'll refrain from my organic questioning. Sure. So we had talked um, briefly about women in STEM. We have kind of touched on that in the past, but um, we haven't had the opportunity to really dive in. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about your perspective of, you know, how you got interested in biology and wanted to pursue that. And, you know, what you think some barriers might be for, you know, young girls, especially, but students who are interested in STEM, but maybe feel that they don't have the resources to get there. Oh gosh, those are... uh, excuse me, Dr. Fleet, before you answer that, we are always being called on the carpet for acronyms. So if you would define STEM, that would be real helpful to our listening audience because Carly and I sometimes just start talking like everybody knows everything that we know. So if you would do that as you answer the question, I'd appreciate it. Sure. And, and Carly, if there are pieces of the question I missed, feel free to remind me so I don't, don't uh, leave pieces behind, right? So STEM is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And that was definitely not an acronym I knew as a kid. So whether it's new or whether I just didn't, I think I knew from elementary age-ish that I liked science-y things. Um, you know, I spent a 
the time playing outside and climbing trees and digging in the dirt. Um, and whether that's part of what, what what caught my interest, I don't know. I I was really lucky as a kid that you know growing up in a small town, the library was in walking distance of my house. And it was one of the few places in town with air conditioning and in rural Georgia, that's a pretty exciting thing in the summer. So I loved the books, but also it was just literally a cool place to go on a hot summer day. And so, you know, I can remember just sitting on the library floor, looking at whatever books I could find. And I happened to find science books and kind of liked them. Um, and when I got a little older and my family moved um, to, to the Boston area, um, my parents did an amazing job of finding all the museums and figuring out when you could go that it was free. And so we went to like every free museum night that I think there was. Uh, and the science museum was amazing. And so, you know, that just, I think helped reinforce my interest and, and helped kind of show me more pathways uh, that were out there. Um, so I, I guess that's the, how I got into, into STEM. Um, in terms of barriers that women face. Um, you know, I think I was in some ways really lucky as a kid that I wasn't aware of some of the barriers, um, except in the fact that, you know, I think there's this, this sense that women aren't supposed to be smart. Uh, and I definitely, some, some coming up through grade school encountered some of that, like, you're not supposed to be good at math, what are you doing? You know, and, and certainly felt the peer pressure to not, maybe not um, talk about the things that I knew and talk about being excited in science. And, and so I do, and I think there's still data today, right, that says that, you know, girls are, are just as good and just as interested up through elementary years. And then something happens around middle school that that interest may still be there. The, the capacity is absolutely still there and, and maybe whatever social pressures um, from peers or from educators or from family or whatever gives kids the message that maybe that's not the path they're supposed to be as interested in, which is a real shame, right? I think it takes um, a diversity of perspectives and interests to really help us figure out what questions we need to ask and, and how to how to answer those questions in ways that reflect all of our different experiences. So, so I certainly think that's a piece of it. All right, what other pieces of the question did I miss there? <laughs> <laughs> no, you answered it perfectly. And honestly, um, that's, I think, a very true assessment. Um, I did struggle in math, even in elementary school, it was not my strongest subject. And I remember meeting with my third grade teacher and she was like, well, don't worry about it. Girls are just not good at math. And that always stuck in my head of like, oh, okay, so I'm just not going to be good at math. And she was like, well, boys tend to be better at math and science and girls tend to be better at English um, and writing. And I was like, okay. And I just sort of accepted it and moved on. But, you know, looking back on that, it's like, that was not a good answer. <laughs> and I think also, um, you know, race and ethnicity play a major role in that too. Those preconceived notions and ideas about who's supposed to be, you use the word Dr. Fleet, smart. And, you know, there's all those built-in things about who's supposed to be smart anyway. Men, white men, are supposed to be the absolute smartest. They're the litmus test for everything academic. And then it kind of just goes down from there. And so um, I think just like women not having access to it, people of color have not had the same access. And some of that, I would imagine, would go with opportunity and those kinds of things. But a lot of it, I think, Carly, would go with what you just said you know, the, the stereotypical ideology that you're not supposed to be. And since you're not supposed to be, then you end up with that self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's kind of not good. I, I read an article, Dr. Fleet, that said that there had been increase, increases since the 70s with women and STEM, but now that's kind of flattening off. Are you familiar with that? Or, or what would you say in your from your own perspective? Is there a, like, 
is it flat for women or are more and more women as you see it? And maybe just make it germane to our college. You know, are you seeing larger classrooms, et cetera? Um, so, so I'm not familiar with the study that, that you mentioned. I, I definitely think the pandemic has had an impact, right? Because as, as, um, as the whole world turned upside down, right? And especially as, you know, kids were no longer physically in school, someone had to do the caregiving. And I think that fell much more on women. And I think that's pulled women out of the workplace in all kinds of ways. So that whether, you know, whether that's a piece of it or not, I don't know. Certainly in terms of what I see, you know, we talk STEM as if it's this one big monolithic thing, but I also think you have to look at different STEM disciplines. So I'm life sciences, and I think that has tended to be close to uh equal representation than, say, engineering or computer science, where the, the numbers are still much, much more skewed. Um, you know, so when I look at my classrooms, I see uh, lots of lots of women students. And, and even thinking back to my own experience as a college student a million years ago, no idea as an undergraduate that there were still disparities in the field. I just thought that was long in the past, right? Surely we're over this. Um, and then I got to grad school and realized, no, surely we're not over this. Um, you know, and I think it's also a matter of sort of at what level are, are we looking at? Um, yeah, I don't know if that gets at uh, your question or not. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it does. I just, it was just a quick article and they just said that it was kind of leveling off and where I guess where we had made intentional strides mm -hmm. to be more inclusive. And then when mm -hmm. that happened, we just kind of, it's just kind of leveled off. And I imagine that too, that as you said, that COVID would, would be part of that because what COVID has done for women has not been the same as what COVID has done or how men have experienced COVID. It's been vastly different. The caregiving, you know, stay at home, your job was already lower paid. So is it, do you, should you really have to still work because you weren't making that much money anyway? You know, all of those kinds of things have really set women back tremendously. Yeah, I think one, I want to thank you for distinguishing because, you know, we do talk about women in STEM as being sort of like a monolith, right? And it isn't. And like you said, you know, science has different statistics. Science has different things going on than math or technology. And so, you know, trying to talk about it like it's one giant thing is not super helpful probably all the time. And then I, you also mentioned, you know, the caregiving responsibilities that have come with the pandemic. And we've talked a little bit about this in some other shows from the perspective of caring for young children and how, you know, that's just sort of expected that that's going to fall on the female partner in the relationship um, and that that's sort of like her responsibility to figure that part out. And um, I just would love your perspective because you did mention that you are a mom and that you um, are a caregiver. And so I'd love your perspective on how, you know, the pandemic has influenced your work and your research and, you know, the time you've been able to devote to your work. Sure. I, so, you know, I, I, I'll say from the outset, right, I'm, I'm lucky to have a very involved uh, spouse straight who's, you know, hands-on with the kids and, you know, so it's definitely not not all on my shoulders and and so you know so so my story is a little bit different in that sense um but i definitely you know just there there's at least for me right once my kids were old enough to be in school i was like oh, okay so from you know eight to three whatever someone else I, I can trust is taking care of them they're they're learning they're in a safe environment they're with their peers and then all of a sudden they're fucking around with me all the time right that just does change things and even teaching classes with you know, sounds of soccer ball being kicked in the kitchen over my over my head, right? And just having to say to students, hang on a second, let me go <laughs> make sure that stops. You know, it's just, uh, and, and I'm lucky in that my kids were, so my kids are middle school and high school age, which is very different than 
you know, parenting at home in the pandemic with a toddler who really needs hands-on attention all the time. I, for the, the parents who had to navigate that and figure out ways to do that, my hat is off to them because that's a, a whole other level of challenge. My kids, at least I could say, okay, for the next 50 minutes I'm in class, do your thing, we'll, we'll be okay, I'll check on you afterwards and trust that their lives were not in danger. So, so that's definitely been a thing. Uh, and then I, the other thing for me that just sort of was coincidental with the pandemic is that my, uh, my parents' health took a dramatic decline for non-pandemic related reasons, but at, at the same time, really. Uh, and so figuring out, you know, how often can I make it to North Carolina to check on them? Can I even go see them at all? Well, mostly no, because lockdown. And how do I navigate their care from a distance, knowing that they need much more hands-on care and I'm literally not allowed in the room with them? Right, that was that was uh, a learning process for sure. And then now, you know, things are are less, much less restricted. And I, I, my mom is actually now much closer, and so I, I can, you know, pop in on my way home from work and make sure she has the groceries she needs and things like that. But that's, you know, um, you know, when we think about caregiving, that's one more layer of okay. So on my to do list before I get home, I need to make sure I have time to get to the grocery store, to get to the the assisted living facility before their visiting hours end, and then get to pick up my son at soccer practice, and then go back home and grade papers and, and do the other things. And, you know, uh, all of us are juggling lots of things in ways that are, are new and that we're all still figuring out. And certainly my load is no worse than anyone else's, but it is just on that mental to-do list, there's a whole extra series of steps that wasn't there before. The, I was looking for that study that I told you. I, I still don't have the name of it, but it was an Erin Check. She was a sociology professor at the University of Michigan, and she was one of the co-authors in that study. And it was an eight-year study of STEM professionals. And one of the things that they said they found is that they found that 43% of women in STEM careers left their full-time job within four to seven years of having their first child, while only 23% of the men did. And I think that goes along with kind of what we're saying is that, and that may be some of the decline that I was talking about earlier. I don't know if they go together at all, but you know, why, why is it kind of leveling off? May have something to do with COVID, but it may also have something to do with choices. And if, you know, if you start a career path and you're only in it for a couple of years, then, and you have to get out of it. Well, even when you come back, you're miles behind those men who were able to keep going. And we see that happen all the time in pay grade and things like that. You know, women, men will ask for money. Women won't, you know, there, I think there's a book called Yes. And it had some rave reviews, just say yes or something like that. And it had some reviews that were kind of like, maybe the research wasn't exactly solid, but I know this to be a fact is that I've never, and when I've been in a position to hire and I've offered a man a job, they've always asked me for more money. Mm. always and women rarely do because what we think is women we're going to work real hard people are going to notice how hard we work and we're going to be rewarded for it but it just doesn't work like that for us and I imagine in the STEM field that it's even more difficult for women to advance now are you the chair of our department Dr. Fleet or have you been are you I, I'm not currently I served as chair of the natural sciences for the past several years and then uh, stepped down this past year yeah I, and you know we've talked a little bit on our show um, in the past about the statistics tell us that a lot of women are getting higher education degrees. In fact, more women are pursuing masters and PhDs than men are. And yet we are not really seeing that translate into um, women in key leadership positions and kind of like, where is that drop off? And that's something that Sharon and I have been kind of investigating because there doesn't really seem to be a good answer for like why all of these women are pursuing these high education degrees, but that it's not translating into these leadership opportunities, these, you know, work opportunities. And, you know, we're not quite sure where that 
that switch happens. And I would, you know, maybe from the, the science biology perspective, you know, have you seen a lot of your uh, female colleagues like been able to find work and, you know, get to do the research that they want to do and things like that? So, uh, so yes and no. And again, I, I don't have statistics, but I have stories certainly. And yeah, just, and they're uh, much better. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I worked with some phenomenal uh, people in graduate school, men, men and women alike, and and then watching the choices that that various peers made. You know, as we made our way out after graduating, um, you know, I can I can think of a, a case of an individual where you know she and and her spouse were both scientists, and you know, it's it's a little hard to find a job in the field anyway, and for to find a job in the same town or in the same commuting region is real tricky and you know so you decide which partner goes for their job and then the other partner tries to find some kind of employment and and so you know for reasons that I think Sharon you mentioned right if, if women are paid less on average to begin with then it just makes more financial sense um for a heterosexual couple for the man to, to sort of you know, take the lead in who takes what position. Um, so I've certainly seen that happen. Uh, I, I can think of another friend who was a phenomenal scientist and, you know, when, when she was getting ready to start a family and she and her spouse sat down and kind of did the math of, you know, so if they were both working full time, you know, what is the due to which tech, tax bracket they're in, um, who, who's earning more, and then how much are they gonna have to pay for daycare? And they decided it would actually cost them more for her to work than, uh, to stay home with the kids, and so while while her kids were little, that's that was the thing that made financial sense to them. Although she was a very very talented is a very talented scientist, um, you know. So there there are stories like that certainly um, of just you know the economics of the decision, and then you know on top of that in probably in every profession, but I think there's some things in the sciences that make it um, just more physically challenging to navigate pregnancy and childbirth and nursing, uh, you know, because there are some types of experiments that you just, <laughs> you start and you know you're not going to stop for eight or 10 hours because the, there's no stopping point in the experiment. You have to follow it through or it, it doesn't work. Um, or for people who are doing field work, right, you're, you know, so if you have to be in Antarctica or have to be in the Amazon or whatever for a period of time, right, that is a tricky thing to navigate um, if you are trying to deal with prenatal care or, or caring for an infant, right? Do you take with you? Do you have access to the care you need where you're going at your field site? Um, so there's certainly things like that that I think um, are an added layer of complication in pursuing a research career. And that's just biology, right? That's a have mammary glands or if you have a uterus, like if you're the one um, that is <laughs> providing for the infant, you, all, all of the uh, you know, supportive partners and childcare and whatever in the world, right? Don't don't overcome some of those very specific uh, needs during at least the early stages of a child's life, right? Uh, and so I feel like we haven't yet figured out a good way in this country. I think other countries, right, with paid parental leave and that there there are some models out there that could help, uh, and, and we don't quite have all of that figured out in this country. Yeah, that was one of the things that in that study that I looked at, they talked about uh, leave, and leave was one of the factors that was a hindrance for women to kind of try to move up the ladder and to be be part of that. And they also said, I think, I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was like men made $85,000, which was $24,000 more than a regular STEM person, you know, white men. Mm -hmm. And and so this wage gap, and we've done a show where we talked about the wage gap. And when we talk about it, people act like it's not real, but the statistics everywhere show how very real it is. I mean, and I don't think we have to even try to go to our own HR and say, let me see who's making what, because nationally, that's the way it is, you know, and so we wouldn't be any different 
than than what it is nationally. And and I think sometimes for women, challenges and, and especially women of color, Hispanic and Black women, uh, and just people of color. I think it's just very very difficult to move in in this in STEM. I think it's very very challenging and difficult. And so we have all of those intersectional confluences that are keeping people out. And if you can keep people out, then it looks more like they shouldn't have been there in the first place. So, you know, it's that whole big thing. Like if we can keep women out of STEM, then it looks like, as you said, Carly, that you got told in whatever grade all those years ago, that it's just the way it is. You know, you're just not good at math, you know, and we can just keep saying, well, there's just more men men scientists. They're just good at it. They're better at it than women. And so I think that's, that's difficult. Dr. Fleet, what was your research and, and is it relevant to what you're doing now? It, your seminal grad- research. Yeah, yeah so, mm-hmm. so in graduate school, I was focused on uh, looking at how uh, plant growth hormones are regulated, right? So we have hormones, but, but plants do also. Uh, and in, in any living system, right, there, there's a lot of really fine-tuned control that goes into making sure you're making the right amount of the hormone at the right time in the right place in the right environment. And so, uh, so my research, um, focused on sort of how to, how to plants uh, navigate that, right? Respond to their environment and decide how much hormone they need to make. And I have taken those same kinds of tools to apply to other kinds of developmental questions uh, in, in my work currently to look at um, not just hormones, but um, control of development in general. How does a plant make the right organs in the right places to, to make the pattern of that plant? So. Uh, I bet that could work with people too. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that the, uh, the, um, the ethical questions and the red tape involved with working with people are a whole lot more complicated than with plants. <laughs> apply, absolutely. Be a different IRB, huh? Yes, you got it. That's very, very interesting. And um, did you have to, when you were doing your research, did you have field research? Did you have to travel a lot or were you, you know, sort of local to where you were? Uh, no, so I am totally a lab person. I love being outside. I love taking hikes, but my research is all in the lab in a very controlled environment. Um, I did travel, you know, to go to scientific conferences, and I, I was super fortunate to be able to work with a collaborator in Japan for several months as part of my graduate work. That was really eye-opening, um, you know, and I, I probably couldn't have done nearly as much of that if I had had small children. I didn't start a family until after I was out of out of grad school. Um, so yes, but I didn't have to travel for field work. Well, that's amazing. And I wish we had hours because I would love to hear like a lot more about that. <laughs> but one thing that I kind of wanted to just get your perspective on is, you know, what can or what kind of support do you think would be good to provide to, you know, grad students who are, you know, maybe do have small children and do have to do field research? Um, you know, what kind of support could those institutions provide? And then also what kind of support could institutions provide for female students interested in STEM, maybe pursuing um, an undergraduate degree and, you know, how to really make sure that they, they feel supported? Um, gosh, I think there, there are lots of potential answers to that, right? Uh, I think, you know, we know from lots of studies that representation is important and so having role models that look like you or that you can identify with however you identify is really important. Mm-hmm. And, and so that means that in order to support the students, we also need to support the faculty and the leadership so that the students can have those role models. I think that's a piece of it. I think certainly for, for graduate students with young children or wanting to start a family, access to childcare is critical, right? And not always easy to come by and definitely not something that you can easily afford on a graduate student stipend. So, you know, so figuring out how to make that accessible, at, you know, back to grad school to uh, even just like, you know, where, you know, if you have a very young infant who's still breastfeeding, like where can you go to feed your baby or to pop milk? Uh, 
right? If you have a shared office, that gets awkward. Um, so having access to lactation rooms, uh, I don't think I even knew those existed until well after my son was born. And oh my goodness, it's amazing to have like a dedicated space for you. If and you're not like just like tucked away in the bathroom or praying that nobody knocks on your door, you know, little things like that. Um, and then I think also just creating a culture where uh, where people talk about their families and where it's okay to have pictures of your kids on the wall. And it's okay to say, hey, I have to leave today. My kid has a pediatrician's appointment. And I think again, having, um, having people in leadership who set that model who, who are doing those things then tells the graduate students or, or tells the faculty members it's it's okay to do that because you know other people are are also doing that and and so yeah having uh, that that means right having people in leadership positions who have also walked that path so that they are aware of what the barriers are uh, and can at least start the conversations I, I you know I think sometimes we're so afraid of of even saying <laughs> you know I have to leave now to take care of my kid. Um, that, that then people aren't aware of what the barriers are because we do such a good job of hiding them and trying to compensate and cope and whatever. And so then it just makes it that much harder for the, the next person because because we're not having those conversations openly. Yeah, I sleep. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Carl. No, I was just gonna say, I think that's amazing. And I definitely agree that the more open we can be about those things and saying like, hey, I gotta leave, I gotta go pump, right? <laughs> like the more <laughs> often we can have those conversations be more open, I think that's incredible, yeah. And, and I think trying to trying to have those kinds of conversations uh, sometimes around men in leadership who have not been educated enough about these kinds of things or see it as something negative or that's why we don't hire you because you have to stop and you have to do these things and look at it in processes and all that. I wanted to ask real quick, Dr. Fleet, I know we're about to run out of time, but um, we're a liberal arts college, you know, rural Southwest Virginia. What would you say to young girls living rural in rural areas that might be interested in science like you had the benefit of going to the museum you know where culture was there and where you could and the library where you could access books and all of these kinds of things and obviously you had involved parents who cared enough we're talking sometimes first generation uh all of those kinds of things what could you, you say or what could we do to possibly help some young girls rule in rural areas who might be interested or in STEM or to get them interested in STEM? So again, there's probably no one simple answer, right? But there are, for instance, some great uh, summer enrichment programs, some of which are free. And so there's, a, I think, a barrier to helping people know about them and, and maybe transportation to getting getting people to them. Uh, but you know, that's those are some, some great opportunities to start to see what's out there and to meet some role models and see what the career paths are. And, and so I think you know, one, one tiny step might just be helping to improve access to, you know, some of the summer enrichment uh, programs uh, and, and maybe even helping more of that happen in the, the schools where, you know, if students are going anyway, then, then they have easier access. And I wonder why you're saying that. I'm wondering about on our campus about women, you know, like grabbing them early when they get here and saying, hey, have you considered this? You know, and I guess part of that would be aptitude. And if they haven't already been turned off, like Carly said, from elementary school, I mean, and they get to college because college is sometimes one of those places where you're you're still discerning where you should go and what you should do and all of that. I wonder about even some kind of program early on or pre-entry to mm -hmm. try to see if based on scores and some other things and interest, if we could move some students in into that pathway. That might be that might be a place to help also. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
I know um, I used to work for the 4-H Educational Center and they do a lot of um, programming with STEM. They have like these science kits and, you know, they do a lot of engineering stuff and um, how to work with technology. So that's, you know, there are definitely some programs available, especially for young children outside of their school to really help them if they are very interested in that, in that work. Yeah, and I think I shared with you all the the before when we were chatting, but about my nephew, you know, and having to purchase his first telescope and the expense that went in with that purchasing it, knowing full well, he's turning 11 tomorrow. This is not his telescope for life and nor should it be, but it was very expensive. And so even if a young child, a young rural child might have interest in something like that, getting access to what could continue that there, financially, there may be ma major barriers because I know his mother could not have afforded that for him. Now, what she did do was at Christmas, she tried to give him a telescope, but it was real inexpensive. We never could get it to work. He was very frustrated, you know, but he's very interested in science. And I was able to be able to go along with her and help her make that purchase for her son to give him one, but it was very expensive. And she couldn't do a single mother, she couldn't do what she wanted to do for her son to, to support his interests. He's a straight A student and he loves science. He absolutely loves it. And she was trying to nurture that, but she couldn't do it. So you wonder how many other rural or impoverished or single parenting or not very affluent, whatever you want to call it, prohibits those kinds of things. So maybe even some equipment, mm -hmm. <laughs> we can get a yeah. grant for some equipment that might help, you know? Absolutely. Well, I know we're out of time. Dr. Fleet, do you have any closing moments, anything that you might want to say that you think would be beneficial that might help us, especially on our campus or any place for women in STEM? Well, so, I mean, I guess I would just say thank you all for the opportunity for this conversation. I think the more that we talk about the issues, right, the more we realize that we're not alone uh, and the more we, you know, recognize what the challenges are so that we can start kind of chipping away and, and, and um, removing barriers and making access more open to anyone who has the interest. Carly. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Fleet. This was a really interesting conversation and we would love to have you back to continue it. We are getting ready to jump into Women's History Month. So I just wanted to remind everyone to check the Emory and Henry calendar for all of those upcoming events. There's going to be a lot of exciting events. So we want to make sure everyone's up to date on all of those. And that is it. So we will see you all next week. Thank you all so much for joining us. Pass on the victory. We shall walk.